worship you, God, if, if I could just catch a glimpse right now of heaven, what the angels are doing at this moment, magnifying the name of Jesus, glorifying you, falling on their faces before your throne. It changed my life, Lord. And I pray that we'd be a church that doesn't minimize your greatness, that doesn't minimize your holiness, that doesn't minimize your wonder and your beauty and your magnificence, but we glorify your name, magnify the name of Jesus as a church, God. I want to thank you for Sunday morning, the chance to, to step outside of our lives and, and to look up, God. Maybe some of us for the first time in a couple of days and just look up and to see you seated in heaven, reigning on high, worthy of our praise. Let us see life and light of you and your glory. Lord, I pray that as we turn our attention to your word, Lord, that you'd speak through me, Holy Spirit. Um, give us perspective from your word. God, this is your word. Um, we're not about reading things into it. We're about sitting under it, listening to it, crafting our lives in obedience to it, Lord. We pray that we'd hear your voice clearly this morning. We love you. Praise you in your name. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Man, I just want to sing that again. Uh, all right, now i got to talk. Okay. Um, good morning. I have that written down here. Good morning. Um, turn, turn your Bibles with me to Acts uh, chapter 11. Acts 11. For those of you that are joining us for the first time or first couple times today, and you're kind of wondering what we do, we basically preach through books of the Bible, one chapter at a time. It's called expository preaching, and the goal of that is that me or Andrew or if we have anyone else that comes and preaches, that we don't come up here and tell you what we think you need to hear, but that we preach what God wants us to hear from his word, right? So my job is to not stand in the way of this. My job is to, to study it and then to present it to you and to say, what, what was Luke, the author of Acts, trying to say then, and what is God saying to us today? So God willing, we'll do that this morning. But just wanted to say... Um, we, we're a church that brings our Bibles, and the reason we do that, we used to have uh, the words up on the screen. Nothing's going to pop up there today, so you can keep looking at the TVs all you want if you don't mind looking at me, but it's, that's all it's going to say. Um, we want you to see the scripture in your Bible. Uh, there's something that happens when you read the passage right in front of you, and then you can go back later and look at it, um, and, and it, you can underline, you can highlight. It's really helpful in your faith journey. So bring your Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we have some sitting out there on a table. We'd love for you to take it with you, keep it as your own. Um, so th that's what our church is about. So let me kind of give you an idea of Acts chapter 11, which is where we're going to be today. There's two halves. The first half is just a recap of what Andrew preached on last week. So we're not going to read that whole first half. The second half is kind of a left turn, and it goes into um, Barnabas's ministry in Antioch. So we're going to spend the majority of our time there. But first, I just kind of want to uh, remind us of, of what uh, Andrew preached on last week and give you a recap and sum up the first 18 verses of chapter 11. Um, so God, in chapter 10, gives Peter a vision of what? What does he see coming down from heaven? A blanket. And what's on the blanket? Animals. What kind of animals? Clean or unclean? Unclean animals. Yeah, yeah, maybe both. But it primarily highlights the unclean animals. And, and God says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Right? Any men in the room hear that voice in their heads often? Right? Rise, kill and eat. Yes. Peter says, no, I won't. Because those animals are unclean. And I'm not supposed to eat unclean animals. I'm faithful. But God does it three times. And then what he says, what I have called clean, don't call common. Don't call unclean. And then 
he introduces Peter to this concept that you Jews have been keeping out the Gentiles from your church all along where I'm inviting Gentiles into the church. No longer do you have to be Jewish to be a Christian. You can just become a Christian straight from a Gentile lifestyle. And so that, that is the message that, that Andrew talked about last week. And Andrew preached on how we, with our prejudice and with our partiality, we can stand in the way of God's work in people who aren't like us. We refuse to pursue them. So that's the first half of this part, right? And so Peter, he gets this vision and he goes to the house of a man named what? Cornelius. That is almost always the right answer. Uh, He goes to the house of a man named Cornelius. And Cornelius is a Gentile, a God-fearing Gentile. And Peter walks in and says, what do you want from me? And Cornelius says, I want to know the words of life. Peter preaches the words of life. The Holy Spirit falls. Cornelius and his household become Christians They're speaking in tongues, they're prophesying, it's crazy, and Peter says, I got to baptize him. They're saying, hey, when do you want to be baptized? I've got to. God has clearly blessed this. I must as well. So then they ask Peter to stick around a couple weeks. Peter stays for a few weeks, teaching them and discipling them, and then he heads back to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles. What happened in the meantime, though, was rumor spread. So the the apostles in Jerusalem heard about what had happened at Cornelius' house, and they're fired up. They're angry. Because Peter went and he disobeyed all the customs of the Jewish people. And he went to the home of a Gentile. He preached the gospel to them. He baptized them. He accepted them into the church. And they're frustrated. So in chapter 11, what we have is we have Peter coming on the scene in Jerusalem to an angry church in Jerusalem. And what he does is rather than lording it over them and saying, hey, I'm, I'm Peter. I'm the rock. Y'all listen to me. He takes them on the journey and he explains to them what has happened. He tells them the story. And at the end of that story... He says this, if then God gave the same gifts to the Gentiles as he gave to us, this is verse 17 of chapter 11, that he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of look at this briefly, and we're going to have a couple of lessons from this passage, and then we're going to move on in the next section of the chapter. And the thing I want you to see, and the thing that Luke, as he writes this, is, is drawing our attention to is Peter's perspective change. Peter has a 180 in his perspective. So look with me at verse 47 of chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 47. Peter's in Cornelius' house. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, They're wanting to get baptized. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Can anyone stand in their way? Can anyone withhold water from them, right? Now look at chapter 11, verse 17. At the end, Peter says, who is I that I could stand in God's way? So two weeks earlier, when he's in Cornelius' house, he says, can anyone withhold water? Can anyone stand in the Gentiles' way from salvation? And then two weeks later, in verse 17, he says, who is I to stand in God's way? And the sense that's happening here is, is Luke is drawing our attention to the fact that what Peter thought was happening when he was in Cornelius' house is he thought that you had these, all these Gentiles that were bum-rushing the gates of heaven. And they're running, they're saying, baptize us, we want to know Jesus, they're pursuing God. And Peter said, well, God clearly approved of it, so I got to let him in. So he's like, well, he stands aside, and he baptizes him, right? What happens in those two weeks is Peter has a perspective change. That's what he saw then. It's almost like he steps back, and he watches the scene, and what he sees is, is that actually it wasn't the Gentiles pursuing God. It was God pursuing the Gentiles. That, that God was the one calling them and initiating towards them and inviting them and saving them. It wasn't the Gentiles saving themselves. And by standing in front of the Gentiles and saying, no, you can't come, what he was really doing is he was standing in the way of God. So what he said was, what he realized was, is we as Christians, we got to get out of God's way so that he can come and save people. And that's what Andrew preached about last week. 
You can stand in God's way and keep him from his word. But what Peter realized was that God is at work. And that's point number one of the sermon. God is at work. God was at work pursuing these Gentiles, and God is at work today. Guys, this perspective is life-changing. If you really comprehend and grasp hold that God is at work in literally every aspect of your life and the people's lives around you, it'll change the way you see the world. That God is at work in your coworkers and your boss. God is at work in your classmates and your teacher. God is at work in your spouse or your kids. God is at work in you and your singleness. God is at work in your neighbor. God is at work everywhere. He's moving and he's working. And just like he saved you and redeemed you and is sanctifying you and is working in your life, he is doing that same thing in everyone on the globe. Isn't that amazing? That perspective will change your life. Remember five years ago, um, it changed my prayer life significantly. Remember, I was praying, uh, actually, the first time Andrew heard this was last service. I was praying for Andrew and Annie when they were in India on one of their uh, missionary um, stints. And I was praying for them there, and I was praying all through their prayer request list from their email. And I was sitting there praying through that, and then I thought, had the thought of, like, actually, God is already working in them. Like, God's already been doing something. Before I sat here and prayed for Andrew and Annie, God was working in Andrew and Annie's life. He was working in the church they were in in India. He was working in that town. He was working in their family. God's been doing something. Why don't I step through and and see, God, what are you doing? And partner with God in that. So I began to pray, God, what are you doing in Andrew and Annie? How are you working in them? How are you working through them? I began to see life from a different angle. This is life-changing when we do that. But this isn't the whole truth. We're not just called to stay out of God's way. Point number two in this first section is this. We're called to join God in his work. Join God in his work. God always works through his people. God always works through people. If Peter had not knocked on Cornelius' door and walked in and shared the gospel with him, Cornelius' household would not have come to know the Lord. If Ananias had not come to Peter and prayed over him and the scales fell off his eyes and shared the gospel with him, Peter would not have come to know the Lord. If Peter had not stood up on Pentecost and shared the gospel with these people, the 3,000 wouldn't have come to know Christ. God works through people. God isn't just someone, he doesn't just say, hey, get out of my way. God says, join me. Come along with me. Help me. I want to work through you and use you. Romans 10, 14, Paul says, how will they believe if they don't hear? And how will they hear if no one preaches to them? And the answer is they won't. They won't hear. They won't believe. They won't come to know the Lord. God, you and me and, the, and God's children are instrumental in the lives of other people. God uses his people. And that's what we've been seeing up at this point in Acts. All through chapters 1 through 10 is God using Peter and the apostles and Stephen and, and Barnabas and all these men. He's using them to save other people, right? God's using them in that work of salvation. But there's a whole other category of work that God does. There's salvation. And then what's the second one? After you become a Christian, he does what in your life? Sanctifies you. There's salvation and there's sanctification. God isn't just, he doesn't just save you and leave you, right? He doesn't get you into the church, and then once you're in, it's like, whew, they're in. They were a mess, but they're in, and now just handle it yourself, right? Follow the rules, listen to your pastor, be a good Christian, right? That's not what God does. He continues to work and to move and to grow you, and he uses us in that work. How many of you have had men or women walk alongside you and intentionally pour into your life for a season and help you grow? Anyone in this room? I was praying through this and thinking about it. Um, my life's been filled with men who've come alongside me and helped me grow. 
Riley Cross, Hunter Stevenson, Frank Beadle, Chris Odom, Jason Ellerby, Todd Carlisle, Andrew Lawrence, John Adams. These are all men who've intentionally helped me walk with Jesus. They've partnered with God and God's work in my life. And I can directly chart my spiritual journey based on those men's influence in my life. When I had them walking beside me, I was growing and thriving. And then when someone stepped out, I, I plateaued. God works through the lives of other people in our lives. So that's what we're going to look at. That's what the rest of chapter 11 is about. Uh, Luke is going to zone in on what one man, Barnabas, does in the life of a brand new church in Antioch. And we're going to ask, how do we join God in his work of sanctifying his children? Let's jump in. Let's read. We're going to read Acts 11. We're going to start in verse 19. I'm going to give a little bit of commentary halfway through this. Um, Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, that was back in Acts chapter 6, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So here's what happened. Stephen got martyred, right? He began sharing the gospel with Greek-speaking Jews in the synagogues. All the Greek-speaking Jewish leaders came out, they chased him out of the city, they threw stones at him, killed him. Saul, later to become Paul, was one of them. He was there with them. So what happened is they started persecuting, and then it said there was a great persecution that arose in Jerusalem towards the Greek-speaking Jews, and they were scattered. So these Greek-speaking Jews got scattered all over this area. And so what it's saying here is, is Luke is picking back up with this story. And he's saying these Jews who were scattered traveled to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And when they were in these cities, what they would do is they would go to the synagogue, and they would preach Christ to the Jews. And then they'd get persecuted and kicked out, and then they had to leave, and they were just refugees. They were trying to find work. They go to another city. They go to the synagogue. They start talking about Jesus. They kicked out, and they kept making their way. They were basically refugees that were wandering around trying to plant their roots somewhere, but they kept getting persecuted in each city. So they come to Antioch, and there's a change. They begin to speak the word to the Hellenists also. Hellenists basically means Greek. Um, is Greek-speaking Gentiles. So back when we saw Hellenists in Acts chapter 6, it was Greek-speaking Jews. These are Greek-speaking Gentiles. These are basically just worldly people. So they go to the synagogue. The Jews don't want anything to do with them. So they go on the street and start speaking to random people on the street. And God, boom, saves them. He starts working in the lives of these Gentiles. But before we go on, I want to kind of unpack Antioch because we're going to camp out there for the next few verses. The city of Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. So Rome had basically conquered the known civilized world, right? And, and they had three big cities, Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. Rome was known, was the seat of government. It was known um, for military, um, for governmental affairs. Alexandria was the city of scholarship. They had schools there. They trained people there. That was what Alexander the Great set up that city to be a city where people would learn. And Antioch was on the Silk Road. It's on, the, um, on a, a major port, and it was basically a city of business and debauchery. Because what you had is you had a port there, and it had a major road going from Antioch to the other cities, and you also had the Temple of Artemis that was right down the road, which was a huge place of immorality. And so all of that filth came into Antioch. It had a lot of money, a lot of wealth, um, and a lot of wickedness. As a matter of fact, I was reading some historians at this time, and one of them said that all of the wickedness in Rome comes straight from Antioch. Antioch was that evil. It was just a city filled with vile and evil people. And yet when these men come there, they preach the gospel and God moves and he saves. All right, so let's keep reading. Pick up in verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. 
This report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them's name was Agabus. And he stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. All right, so the apostles in Jerusalem... They just heard about Cornelius and the Gentiles and the sheep of unclean animals, right? Kill and eat. They just heard about that. They just came to grips with that. And then all of a sudden, messengers come in and say, hey, there's a revival in Antioch. They say, Antioch? say, yeah, Antioch. And it's not among Jews. It's among Gentiles. And it's a mess. We need help. And so the apostles, think about God's timing here. Think about if that had happened before this realization. But God's timing, God's at work. And so the, the apostles gather together and they say, we've got to send somebody to clear up this mess. Who are we going to send? And they send a man named Barnabas. So who is Barnabas? The first time we encounter Barnabas is in Acts chapter 4. Um, the, the early church is gathering together, and Luke is trying to tell us about the generosity that's happening in this church. And what he does is he says that a lot of people who were owners of land were selling their property and bringing the proceeds and laying it down at the apostles' feet. Basically saying, hey, use this money for the work of the ministry. Use this money for the poor. Use this money for the widows. Use this however you see fit. And they give an example, and that example is a man named Joseph or Barnabas. And Barnabas comes, and he sells a field that he owns, and he lays the proceeds at the apostles' feet, right? So that's where we see him first. He's introduced in Acts chapter 4. Something else we learn about him is his name's not really Barnabas, it's Joseph. Barnabas means son of, you know, encouragement. Barnabas means son of encouragement. And what they would do at this time is if someone um, had an attribute about them that was very prominent, they would call them son of that, Right? So son of encouragement. So Barnabas apparently was a man of great encouragement. That word encouragement means perichalasis. Perichalasis, the Greek word, and our word paraclete comes from it. A paraclete is a helper. So encouragement doesn't just mean that Barnabas would like encourage people from afar. He would come and walk alongside them. He would help them. He would walk with them for a season. He would encourage them. He would challenge them. He would serve them. He would walk with them for a season. That's the kind of man Barnabas was. And this is what we see Barnabas doing over and over and over in the book of Acts. Every time we see Barnabas, he's walking alongside someone and helping them grow. Everywhere Barnabas lands, the people around him start to grow because he's there. I'll say that again. Everywhere Barnabas lands, the people around him start to grow. Okay, He's like a marigold. Um, all right, I don't know if you knew this. I learned it this week. If you plant a marigold in your vegetable garden, your vegetables will grow clear. Has anyone ever heard that before? So marigolds is, is one of those plants that everything that, that benefits other plants. So everything around the marigold, all the vegetables will grow better because the marigold's there. That's who Barnabas was. He was a marigold, right? Everywhere Barnabas lands in, in Acts, everyone else starts to grow. They start to mature. They start to become fruitful around him. So we're going to look at how Barnabas partnered with God, how Barnabas joined God in this work. What does Barnabas do that causes other people to become more fruitful? The reason I'm excited about this sermon is that my desire for our church is that we would be a church of Barnabases. That, that each of you, men and women, 
kids, teens, would be men and women who wherever you're planted, wherever you go, the people around you start to grow because you're there. That, that whether it's in your home, whether it's in your workplace, whether it's in the grow group you join, whether it's here sitting next to you in the seats, that the people around you start to grow because you're there. And I just want to ask you on the front end, is that you right now? Think about your life. Do people start growing in their faith because you're in their life? When you get planted next to somebody, maybe it's your neighbor, maybe it's someone you work next to, do they start growing? Do they start, is there a curiosity with the Lord? Do they start growing in their faith because you're there? I'm not saying that to point a finger of condemnation. I'm saying that, that our default is not that. Our default is to be like a weed. We get planted in the garden, we start, right? We start sucking all the nutrients out of the soil, right? It's like, I want it for me, right? I want everything for myself. That's how we are naturally. And Andrew talked last week, that's what the Jews did. God blessed the Jewish nation, Abraham, so that he would be a blessing to every nation. And yet, what did they do? They started putting walls up around their camp. They kept everyone out. They kept the blessing for themselves. And if we're not careful as Christians, we can do the exact same thing. We can live self-centered, self-focused lives just like the rest of the world. So Barnabas is going to teach us how do we get outside of ourselves and begin partnering with God in his work and other people. So I'm going to make four, the rest of the sermon is going to be four practical observations on how to do that from the life of Barnabas. All right? Y'all ready? Let's do it. Um, Verse 23. Chapter 11, verse 23. So when Barnabas came to Antioch and saw the grace of God, he was glad. When Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. So the first point is look for God's grace. Look for God's grace. When Barnabas arrived in Antioch, he was looking, searching for evidences of God's grace. This was not an orderly sight in Antioch. Like, this was a total mess. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, how many of you were saved out of a very rough lifestyle? Anybody in the room saved out of a rough lifestyle? W- was, uh, was it clean? No, it was messy, right? I've walked beside men who've been saved dramatically from rough lifestyles. And I'll tell you what didn't happen. They didn't clean their act up overnight, right? There were, there were besetting sins, these major issues in their life, years later that God was slowly working them through. And that's what would have happened in Antioch. These people would have been a mess. And not only that, but you have these refugees that have come in and have accidentally planted a church. And so they've got all these Greek-speaking Gentiles that are coming to the Lord, and these refugees don't know what they're doing. And so they call for Barnabas. So he gets there, and it's a mess. But it doesn't say anything about the mess. It says he saw the grace of God. Anybody can point out problems in the life of another person, right? Anybody can see issues. We do it all the time. We judge people based on the issues we see in their life. Oh, I, I, thought, I thought they were a Christian, but then I saw them at um, Ricardo's Pizza, right? <laughs> or I saw them at uh, wherever. I, I thought they were a Christian. Or I was in this conversation with them. Did you hear how they talked about that person? I'm in their neighborhood. You should see them there, right? We begin to judge other people. Whereas Barnabas, he stepped in. He stepped right into the mess. He got his shoes dirty. He walked in and he was looking for evidences of God's grace in the lives of those around him. And he didn't just see the grace. He rejoiced in it. He was glad in it. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard about the Gentiles in Cornelius' house, their reaction was anger. When Barnabas heard about this, his reaction was joy. He was rejoicing in that. A Barnabas culture is made up of men and women who are looking for and rejoicing in evidences of God's grace in one another's lives. It's a Barnabas culture. That is my prayer for our church, that we would have a Barnabas culture. That when you start getting to know people, you start asking, what's God doing in your life? You start looking for evidences of God's grace in the life of another. If you want to be a man or woman that causes those around you to grow, start looking and asking, God, what are you doing in their life? What are you at work in? Begin with a curiosity there. 
That's how Barnabas got started. So that's the start of a Barnabas culture. So let's look at what he does next. All right, back in verse 23. So when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So point number two is fan the flame. So look for grace, fan the flame. Barnabas fanned the flame of faith in this church. Um, we went on an elder retreat, like a prayer and vision retreat, uh, first weekend in January. It had been pouring rain all the week before. We went to Wesley Gardens, and the first night, uh, we, we did a little bonfire. And I brought a bunch of wood in my truck, and, and I got it set up, and it was on this bed of wet coals, uh, but I had fat lighter. Anybody ever use fat lighter in a fire? All right, it's, it's like a miracle. It's awesome. You light it, it goes, Poof. all right, so, and I don't know if you men know, like, when, when you build a, when you have a group of men, and you build a fire, there's one person that's like the fire guy, okay? And, and all of your pride is wrapped up in that fire, right? And there's like the moment of nervousness before it lights of like, all these men are watching me. I'm about to make a fool of myself. And then it like lit and, the, and my fire started to grow, okay? So it started to just boom. And I was just like, oh, that's my fire right there. So we were gathered around, we were chatting, talking, getting deep, whatever it is that men talk about. And, and no, I'm not kidding. The fat lighter burns out, and within three minutes, my fire went in reverse, okay? You ever seen those videos, the bullet that goes back into the gun, right? Like the reverse, that's what my fire did. Like it was burning, and it goes, and dies, right? And like my pride just died right along with it, just gone, right? My fire right there, and, and so these guys, so we were standing like talking to one another in the light, and all of a sudden we were just talking in the dark, right? Like standing around a pile of wood. And so Andrew very humbly uh, takes over fire duty. Any men ever had that happen to you where another guy has to take over fire duty? It's embarrassing. But, but he, he didn't embarrass me about it. He took over fire duty. And what he did was he started taking all the wood that I'd piled on that fire, started taking it all off. And he just left a couple of small sticks. And then he got down on his stomach and he started blowing on the embers. He'd blow on it. And then a little flame would pop up. And then he'd blow on it some more. And that flame grew. And he would fan the flame. And it grew and grew and grew. And then when the fire got big enough, he'd add one stick of wood. The fire would start to engulf that. He'd add another stick of wood. And he slowly grew the fire by fanning the flame. This is exactly what Barnabas does when he gets to Antioch. It would have been really easy for Barnabas to have gotten there and seen all these heathens that have come to know Christ and said, man, we need a class. Like, we need to tell them how to do it. We need a doctrine class. Let me show you all what I did when I became a Christian. This is how you live the Christian life. And that would have been really helpful in making disciples of Barnabas. But Barnabas' goal was to make disciples of who? Christ. So what Barnabas does is instead of jumping in there and dumping a bunch of wood on that small flame, is he begins to fan the flame. And rather than saying, hey, these are all the things you're still doing wrong, he says, hey, remain faithful. Cleave to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Don't give up. Don't stop. I know that you're going back home and your family doesn't know the Lord. You're going back to your workplace and they may mock you and make fun of you. Don't give up. Barnabas knew that this new fire of the church in Antioch was being built on a wet bed of cold, old coals and that it was going to suck the life out of that fire if he didn't fan it into life. So that's what Barnabas began to do. That's the same with you and me. Guys, as, as Christian as our culture is in the South, we do not live in a Christian culture. And if we aren't careful to fan the flame of God in one another's lives, it's going to start sucking the fire, the heat right out of us. We're going to start decreasing in our, in our zeal for the Lord. If we're not careful to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to challenge one another, to fan the flame in one another's lives. So that's what Barnabas does. He fans the flame of faith in these men and women. So let me ask you, is this, is this what you're doing? Are you fanning the flame of faith in the lives of those around you? Not only are you asking God, what are you doing in them? But when you see the spark and you see the flicker, you begin to fan it into life. You begin to encourage it and make them grow. That's what Barnabas did. That's the second step in developing a Barnabas culture in our church. 
Let's keep reading. All right, number three. Let's, let's read starting in verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. What did Saul's name become later? Paul. And when he, There you go. Got it that time. Um, he looked for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Barnabas is, is doing this work, and all of a sudden, because of his fanning the flame, because he is a, a good pastor, uh, people start getting added to the church, and it starts multiplying. And pretty soon, Barnabas says, I can't contain this anymore. I need help. So he goes and gets Paul. Why does he get Paul? Why didn't he just grab one of the other guys from Cyprus or Cyrene that had raised up this church? It's because Barnabas wants to disciple Paul. This is what Barnabas has been doing all along. He had discipled Paul two chapters ago in Jerusalem, and he wants to go get Paul again. He sees in Paul a future minister of the gospel, and he wants to go stoke that flame and pour in to Paul. This is what we see Barnabas doing all along. Everywhere he pops up, he's intentionally investing in a few men. Acts chapter 9, he's investing in Paul. Acts chapter 11, he goes and grabs Paul, brings him with him, and starts discipling him. Acts chapter 13, once they've grown this church in Antioch and it's thriving, he, he and Paul leave. What we see is that he's raised up three men. He's discipled Simeon, Lucius, and Menaean. In Acts chapter 15, we see that he's discipling Mark. Paul, or Barnabas is constantly investing his life in a few other people. And that's point number three, invest your life. So look for God's grace, fan the flame, and then invest your life. Barnabas made it his aim to invest his life in a few teachable men. He always had a few teachable men around him. Let me ask you, what made a bigger impact for the kingdom? Barnabas preaching to the hundreds of people in Antioch or discipling one man, Paul? Which one? Paul, right? Paul, discipled by Barnabas. Because Barnabas took the time to invest in one, to get breakfast with him, to invite him into his life, to answer his questions, to bring him alongside him, because he took that time, he changed the world. Paul goes on the missionary journeys and spreads the gospel all over the known world at the time. It's because Barnabas took time to invest in one man. The way of the kingdom is through men of faith investing in a few younger men of faith and women of faith investing in a few younger women of faith. That's the way of the kingdom. This is what Jesus did. He preached to the crowd, but he discipled the 12. This is what Paul did. He had missionary journeys. He'd go into synagogues and preach the gospel, but he brought Silas, Timothy, Titus, Mark, along with him in this journey. And this is what God's call is for us. You guys, this is not just for pastors, okay? Um, you might not be called to be a Peter and to lead a church. You might not be called to be a Paul and go on missionary journeys, but every single one of you is called to be a Barnabas, a man or woman that walks alongside other men or women in their faith to help them grow. Invest your life in others. And this is the call of Christ. Right before he ascended, he said, go and make what? Disciples of every nation. The call of every Christian is a call to discipleship. Not just for you to be a disciple of Jesus, for, but for you to make disciples of all nations. For you to look around you where you are and say, where do I see God's grace in the people around me? And then you see it and you fan it into flame. And it goes into flame and you say, let me invest in that life. You begin to intentionally walk beside someone else. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul, who is discipled by Barnabas, tells Timothy, who he's discipling, what you've heard from me entrust to faithful men will be able to teach others also. So this is what discipleship is. You have Barnabas. He disciples Paul. Paul disciples Timothy. Tim Timothy disciples faithful men, those faithful men who are able to teach others. You have discipleship growing up in the church, right, as the church multiplies in the lives of other people. But it's not just men. It's women too. Titus 2, 3 through 4, older women 
Teach what is good and train the younger women in the faith. This is the way of the kingdom. It always has been and it is today, right? People don't grow just from you coming here and hearing a sermon once a week and getting in a grow group. You grow through the intentional investment of other believers into your lives, right? And that's what we're going to see over and over in Scripture. A Barnabas culture is made up of men and women who are multiplying their lives into others who are stepped behind them in the face. So let me ask you, application, older men, are you doing this? I know some of you feel like, well, I don't know how to relate with a guy in their 20s or 30s. I, I don't know what I'm doing. I've never discipled anyone. I, I'm, I'm only 10 years old in my faith. I don't know what I'm doing. It doesn't matter. Are you, are you looking for men that are behind you in their faith, praying and asking God, and intentionally investing your life in them? Women, are you doing the same thing? Older women in your faith, are you intentionally praying for and looking for younger women in the faith? I don't care if you walk up to some girl out of the coffee afterwards and say, hey, who are you, right? Start talking to them, right? And see if God's got anything there. And it's like, maybe not. All right, let me meet somebody else, right? Are you soaking that flame, right? Be awkward about it, but invite someone to lunch. Get to know them. See, is God at work in them? Do we click? Can I invest my life in this person for a season? Begin to see what is God doing. And I also encourage the other way around. Younger men, younger women, do you see that you need spiritual leadership in your life right now? Don't just think that coming to church and, and trying to do it on your own is going to do it. You need leadership in your life. So start taking, see an older man in the church and, and ask him, um, hey, can you get lunch? Take him to lunch, get to know his story. He might be a bum. Don't ask him to lunch again. Get somebody else, right? Um, start getting to know men in the church. Same with women. Invite one of these older ladies over. Maybe you got the kids all day at the house and ask someone over to come over for coffee mid-morning. She can help you tame the chaos. Get to know her a little bit. Hear her story. If she's someone that you feel like you can connect with, say, hey, can we get lunch again? And then ask, hey, could you invest in me for a season? This is, what I'd, this is what God's doing in me. This is what I'd love to grow in. Could you help me do that? Could you maybe read the word together, read some books together? I'd love for you to help me. That's discipleship. We begin to invite other people along with us on the journey. The church begins to change. And this happened to me when I was in Birmingham, Alabama. It takes time. I was there for four years. Um, I was praying the whole time, God, would you provide somebody to pour into me? I'm young. I'm in youth ministry. I need it. And so I, what, I, what it is, I started looking around me in the youth. And I saw this student that was just super godly at a young age. I was like, man, that's pretty unique. Um, and I started getting to know him, and I saw his sisters were the same way. So I started asking him, why, why are you this way? Like, what, who's walking alongside you? He's like, well, my dad just walks with me. So I was like, I got to know his dad. So I, I got his, his dad's number, and I got lunch with uh, Todd Carlisle. And I, I met him at the, at the place, and I saw him, and I was like, this man's a nerd. Like, this man is an absolute geek. Like, there's no way. Like, we're so different. Like, we could not be more different. But I stuck, it, stuck with it. I asked him his story. And what I saw in Todd was a maturity, a spiritual maturity that I wanted to see in myself. So regardless of how geeky he was and how cool I, I am, right, uh, <laughs> they laughed harder at the first service of that. I wasn't expecting people to laugh at that, actually, when I heard it in here. Um, he walked alongside me for two years. I went to England. He followed me to England. He didn't go there. We had a weekly phone call, and he discipled me, poured into my life, he invested me. I would not be up here today if it was not for Todd Carlisle. And I wouldn't have met with Todd Carlisle had I not sought the Lord for it and gone out on a limb. I asked three other men before I asked Todd. And those three men, quite frankly, were bums. <laughs> like, I was, was like, you don't, <laughs> like, what is going on in your life? Like, you, you don't have your act together. So I moved on. Men, are you doing that? Are you looking for other people to disciple you? You're looking to invest your life in others. If you don't know how, this is what I get a lot. I would love to do that. I would love to invest my life in others, but I have no idea how to do that. I've never done that. No one's ever done that with me. Please ask me. Like, come up, say, hey, I'd love to take you to lunch. I'll take that offer any day. Um, and I'll, I'll walk you through what it looks like to invest in someone else's life, to disciple them. 
if you're a lady and you want to do that, come talk to me and I'll, I'll connect you with Sydney Cunningham or, or Annie or Elizabeth. We've got women in our church that would love to teach you and walk alongside you as you disciple someone else. But start somewhere. You've got to start somewhere. And what I would say, our, our hope in grow groups um, is not that grow groups would be the end all. Grow groups is just a meeting. It's going to happen for 14 weeks. And it's going to be over for the summer. It's going to restart in the fall. And that's a great chance, but that, that's not going to grow you deep in your spiritual journey. The goal is, is that Grow Groups is a space for you to dialogue about the Lord with a few other believers, but that you're getting to know people. And hopefully through whatever group you get connected with, there are men and women that you can invest your life in, go deep with, live life together, share struggles with, share sins with, and help one another grow towards the Lord. So it's number three, invest your life. All right, number four. All right, I'm short on time. All right, number four, let me keep reading. Um, verse 27. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So Antioch Church, brand new church, they hear that there's going to be a famine all over the whole land. Let me ask you, in 2020... March of 2020, when you heard there was going to be a pandemic all over the whole known world, what did you do? Went to the grocery store. What did you get? Toilet paper. What else? Hand sanitizer. What else? Food and Lysol wipes, right? You stocked your house with toilet paper and Lysol wipes. Some of you, raise your hand if you're still using that toilet paper in 2020. Anybody? Right? Like you're, you just stockpiled it. You brought it all in. You went and got it. What did this church do when they heard there was a famine all over the world? They got their toilet paper and their Lysol wipes, and they brought it all to the church, right? They, that's what they did. They gathered everything together. They didn't, and, and here's the crazy thing. The famine was going to be all over the world. They didn't hear there was going to be a famine in Judea, and so they sent money to Judea. There was going to be a famine in Antioch, too. And when there's a famine in the Middle East, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Like, it, it obliterates everything. So it's not like they were preserved from it. What they thought was there's going to be a famine. Our brothers and sisters in Judea, a poor countryside, are really going to struggle. So let's be proactive in this. So they all pooled their money together, and they sent it over to Judea. Who did they get this idea from, do you think? Who did that before in Acts chapter 4? Barnabas, didn't he? He came to the church, he sold a field, and he brought the proceeds to the apostles. And this is exactly what we see replicated in this church in Antioch. They're following Barnabas' example. They're taking their money, they're, they're bringing it to the apostles' feet, and they're sending it over to a needy church. That is what they are doing here. And so number four is always be decreasing. Always be decreasing. Barnabas brought to Antioch the principle of decreasing. This is the last point, but let me give you a new perspective on generosity. When you give generously to others, the reason it's so hard is because you are intentionally decreasing yourself to increase them. So Whatever it is, whether it's your time, whether it's your gifts, whether it's your tithe, you, you, you're giving 10% of what God has given you to our church. What you're doing is you're decreasing yourself by 10%. You are losing 10% of yourself in order to give it to the church. When you give to someone in need, you're decreasing yourself. When you go serve by keeping somebody's kids, right? We're about to have a ton of uh, deployment over the next six months. When you go help a mom who's struggling with her kids, when you go help and give them an evening so she can get a break, you are decreasing your time so that you would increase someone else, right? That's the principle of generosity. That's why it's so hard. Barnabas was always decreasing, and it's not just with money. It's with every aspect of life. The Christian is called to be a decreasing person. That's the way of the kingdom. And whenever you see Barnabas, he is always decreasing. In Acts chapter 4, 
in his generosity, he was decreasing. He sold the field, he gave the money, he decreased by that amount. In Acts chapter 9, he was decreasing. He befriended Paul. You ever befriended someone that hated? Paul was hated. He befriended Paul. He decreased in his reputation in order to walk alongside Paul. In Acts chapter 13, what we're about to see is that Barnabas and Saul, he decreases. He's leading this church in Antioch, and God says, no, go on a missionary journey, and he leaves. Doesn't ask any questions. He and Paul just go, decreasing. Actually, turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Flip the page. I want you to see something. All right, so we have the ministry of Barnabas. Barnabas invites Saul, or Paul, along with him. Look at the section title of Acts chapter 13 at the top. It says, who, who were sent off? What are the two names there? Barnabas Saul. Now look down over verse 4. Who are the two names? All right, now look down to verse 13. What are the names? Paul and Barnabas. Then you go over to chapter 14. It's Paul and Barnabas again. It's Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Barnabas. And then in chapter 16, it's just Paul. Barnabas intentionally was decreasing. He walked alongside Paul. He led the missionary journeys. But as soon as Paul was ready, Barnabas began to step back. He began to let Paul do the ministry. He began to let Paul preach the sermons. When you look at Acts chapter 14, Barnabas is no longer preaching. It's just Paul. He begins to decrease, and then eventually he sends Paul off, and Paul joins with Silas and Timothy and goes off on his own journey while, while Barnabas takes John Mark to Cyprus. Barnabas was always decreasing in his life, right? And that's the call of the Christian. A Barnabas culture is made up of men and women who are always decreasing, who aren't hanging on to our wealth or our time or our energy or our reputation, but are always willing to give it up so that someone else might grow. That's what discipleship is. It is intentionally giving your life away so that someone else might grow. So ultimately, these four points, what Barnabas shows us is the way of discipleship. You look for God's grace in the lives of others. When you see it, you move towards it. You fan it into flame by encouraging them, walking alongside them. Then if you see the fire begin to catch in their life, you step in and you invest in their life for a season. Then after they've grown to maturity, you begin to decrease in their life. This was the way of Christ, and this is the way of the Christian. Just finish with this. Why? Why do we do this? Is it for the glory of CBC Richmond Hill? For the glory of you? No, it's for the glory of Jesus. When we are reproducing Christ in someone's lives, we aren't reproducing ourselves. We're not magnifying ourselves. We're saying, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me for a season while I follow Christ so you'll learn how to follow him on your own. That's the call for discipleship. Would we, please, church, would we be a church that begins to help the person next to you grow because you're there? Come alongside one another. Be a Barnabas in the lives of those around you. Let me pray, and we're going to sing. Father, thank you so much for your grace. God, I'm humbled by your grace in my life. I'm humbled that you sent men to come alongside me in my journey. Lord, you didn't have to do that, but you chose to. I'm humbled that you've used me in the, in the lives of other men to help them grow, to help them walk with you. Lord, I pray that as you grow our church, that we wouldn't just grow in programs and teaching and worship and serving, but that we would grow deep in discipleship. Lord, I pray that this morning you lit a fire in some of the men and women in this church, maybe even some of the kids of, man, I, I need to be discipled. I need someone to walk alongside me and help me grow. Or, man, I need to start investing my life in someone else. Lord, let us be a church that invests our lives, that is decreasing for the sake of the work of the ministry. In Christ, be magnified in our church. Be magnified as we go out. Be magnified as we teach one another how to follow Jesus. God, we love you. Praise things in your name. Amen. Y'all stand with me. Let's worship together.